to the Kane and Rinse podcast here, volume 11, issue 533, where we will be talking about Cuphead. Uh, joining me, Brian Edwards, in issue 533 are James Carter. Hello. And Ryan Jow. Hi there. So I was thinking about giving us like a name, like uh, like if we were Cuphead, Mugman, and Miss Chalice, and, but then I realized I'm more of a pork rind, so I figured <laughs> we could just, our, our personalities will develop as we end up talking through this game, but in order to talk about the game, we need to actually talk about what the game is. So what is Cuphead? I've kind of put it down as a 2D boss rush bullet hell battler where Cuphead and his pale mug man are attempting to collect souls for the devil in order to save their own. Um, I put down a few inspirations here as um, and Mega Man, Contra, Gyrus, and perhaps Punch-Out. Is there any other uh, inspirations you guys think maybe this game draws from? Yeah, I mean, obviously from the kind of tradition of like vertically and horizontally scrolling shoot 'em ups uh in the like bullet hell format but yeah i don't mm. know like any in particular that really stand out to me and that's probably just because i'm not like super well versed in the genre right right i think it is just the genre in in general um obviously this plays like a platformer uh like a, a 2d platformer to some degree but the amount of bullets and the fact you're always having to manage your own attacks as well does kind of make it a bit like that the um the parry mechanic as well again there's no specific game i would necessarily point to but right. that's yeah. kind of there are shooters that have done things with different color bullets and whether you interact with them or not thinking of ikaruga that kind of thing it's ikaruga, not exactly, a similar yeah. mechanic but it's in the kind of area i guess so we'll go through our own personal histories with the games uh james i'd like to hear from you first um was cuphead something that you had your eye on kind of day one or did you come to it a little later Oh, it was absolutely a game I had my eye on um, from, I think, the first moment that I would have um, would have seen it in, in, I you know, whenever it was first presented. I honestly can't remember, uh, but it was one that I was absolutely looking out for and picked up as soon as uh, as possible uh, after it did come out. Um, played through on uh, Xbox uh, One at the time. I'd kind of thought, oh, I should go back and 100% that game. And then when I went back for this playthrough leading into this, it tells me I've got 105% completion on my save <laughs> file, which is nowhere near all of the achievements. I haven't gone through and done expert difficulty at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me either. I'd not gone through and got like S rank on every level or even A rank on every level. But for this, what I did was picked up the DLC and played through all of that, mostly as Miss Chalice, and then went mm. back and started doing some of the challenges that the DLC introduces. So playing through some kind of Inkwell Isle 1, 2, and, and 3 levels. But yeah, it's it's a game that by kind of necessity, in order to play through once, you've kind of played through multiple times because it's mm-hmm. so much kind of right one more try kind of situation on each right. each level um so it is one that by the time i got to the end the relief of having finished it kind of felt like a a, a full experience without needing to go back right. and, and replay <laughs> everything uh but this week definitely dived into it quite a bit more as far as myself i i'm very similar to you james i remember seeing a i think it was just a, like a like a package at either an e3 conference or whatever where it was kind of going through the games to come and they were showing just snippets of every game and i was watching the montage go through and then and then Cuphead popped up and I just remember my eyes just like popping out of my skull and just being like, what is that? And I never hadn't heard of it. I looked it up and it was actually my inspiration to getting an Xbox one because I was a bit of an achievement, still am a bit of an achievement fan. And, and I was kind of that person that, you know, played all three language versions of the Avatar game to get all you know th- three versions of yeah. the thousand achievements and everything. 
but I but I lean towards PS4 at launch for for a lot of reasons. Um, seeing the Cuphead was going to be an, at least originally an Xbox exclusive, it appeared um, that was my impetus for getting an Xbox. And then I and then I got an Xbox, and then it got delayed by another two years, I think, before yeah. it came out. But still, was glad I picked it up for sure. Um, but yeah, when this this game was was a day, it actually came out on my birthday. Its original release date was on my birthday. And I, uh, I remember I took the day off from work and I just basically spent the whole weekend just diving in. And I've been back numerous times since for the DLC, much like you, James. I, I got that, was able to pick that up on day one as well and get through that. Um, but yeah, it was one of those games that just based on its, and once I saw the art style and then found out what the game actually was, it was just kind of like one of those games. It seems like it was being a little tailor made for me, which was, which is always a, a good feeling. Ryan, how did you uh, find yourself coming to Cuphead? Yeah, this one makes a strong impression during E3s and, and stuff like that. You know, obviously, it, it looks unlike anything else. And so it was always one that was on my radar. It wasn't necessarily like top of my list because I'm not like a big bullet hell type of person. I find the genre to be like pretty punishing. And I don't I, I guess I'm just not like well trained enough in the genre to be able to kind of like discern those trails in between bullet patterns and stuff like that. Like I just, you know, I, I boot up like Crimson Clover and I just can't see my route through all the bullets. It's uh, it's not mm-hmm. one of the senses that I've developed, unfortunately. And so, you know, it was um, it was one that I fully intended to pick up at some point, but it wasn't like a huge priority for day one. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I ended up waiting for a, a sale on that one, but I bought the Xbox version because it's a it's one of those wonderful Microsoft things that is still like vanishingly rare, unfortunately, of uh, cross spy mm-hmm. where you can buy it yeah. on uh, Xbox and then you get the PC version as well. So, you know, I don't have to make the choice in that this in, in that um, instance. I just get both versions. So, um, yeah, I I bought it. I played it through and must have been like over the course of like three or four days, probably the first time around. Mm-hmm. Really, really enjoyed it. I yeah, I thought it was marvelous. I had such a great time with it. It wasn't as uh, it wasn't as unapproachable as I originally expected it to be. I left it at that. Uh, I probably revisited a level or two for the next few years, but then when the DLC came around, I picked that up. I played through the entire DLC in like a day, which mm-hmm. is I, I had a ton of fun. Um, I feel kind of guilty almost playing through in a day what it takes somebody like four years to build. <laughs> but um, right, yeah. It feels like a destructive way to consume content, but uh, I had a great time. So, you know, and I've, you know, been back to revisit the stages and I, I will continue to for some time. So it's not completely expended uh, contents. But then uh, yesterday I went through pretty much all of the game's bosses again, except for uh, I wasn't able to beat King Dice and and the devil in time for uh, my wife to not get upset for me for paying a little bit too much in one sitting. So fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. It sounds like we all, we had pretty similar experiences there, at least with how we consumed it once we had it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah so uh, this is an interesting one uh, for a lot of reasons. And, and we're going to get into a, a lot of those reasons why uh, developed by studio MDHR, which is their first and currently only game published self-published um with help from microsoft at the beginning but as as we see as we move on it did make its way to a lot of other platforms uh directors directors were chad and jared moldenauer uh which is moldenauer being the mdhr and studio mdhr uh producers were uh, marija and ryan moldenauer 
uh, designed by Jared Moldenauer. You're going to see a lot of uh, the same names popping up. Um, they uh, started a company and, and brought in some programmers, uh, Tony Kukluzzi, uh, Eric Billingsley, Kesel Adamo, and Thomas Pride. Um, artists, again, the Moldenauers, uh, Chad and Maria Moldenauer. The writer uh, was Evan Skolnick, uh, composed by Christopher Madigan. We're going to hear from him in a little bit. And yeah, it's kind of one of those games that's made its way out for everything now. Um, it came out for Windows and Xbox One on September 29th. I'm sorry, that was the day before my birthday. I, I t- must have taken the next day off to play it. Uh, came out um, on Mac OS on October 19th of 2018. Nintendo Switch, April 18th of 2019. And then making its way over to PS4 um, on July 8th, 2020. Uh, according to Wikipedia, they call it they call it a run and gun is what they have, have decided to call it. So. Yeah, which is interesting, given that some of the levels within the game are specifically the run and gun levels. Kind of a right. weird, yeah, weird thing to have the genre be only a kind of subset of the levels. But and it's also interesting too because those run and gun um, levels are kind of maybe one of the bigger talking points for when people talk about their favorite and least favorite parts of the game, mm-hmm. uh, which we will get into. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, as far as reviews go, it reviewed very, very healthily. Um, on Open Critic, it sits as an eighty-eight percent. On Metacritic, it sits as an eighty-six percent. Um, as far as user reviews, uh, Metacritic is an eight point four with nine hundred twenty-six reviews. On Steam, this is wild to me. Um, overwhelmingly positive with one hundred two thousand one hundred eighty-four reviews. Um, so that's obviously huge. And then in IMDb, it sits at an 8.6 with 2,670 votes from the players. Um, as far as sales go, um, and I forgot to put these in the notes, but, um, I meant to do that, uh, in the first two weeks of release, um, more than a million copies were sold of Cuphead. And then, uh, by July, 2019, it was up to 4 million. And then the most recent time, uh, that we have, uh, solid updates, were uh, by um, to July twenty twenty excuse me by July July of twenty twenty um, when it was released for the PS four it had reached over six million sales That's, so obviously yeah. <laughs> has 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 been huge and That's as far wild. and I remember this this is strictly from a studio MDHR tweet um, they had over one million sales of the DLC in the first two weeks so um, clearly it has uh, done the work it needed to do which is very interesting considering how. It's hard to call it a niche game, especially when you talk about Cuphead now. But I mean, it's essentially an, an indie boss rush bullet hell side scroller where you play in the kind of a 1930s art style. And that doesn't necessarily jump off the page and scream to you as a blockbuster game, you know, when in description. So uh, are, are you guys surprised by the sales or do you think it's um is its uniqueness, its quality? What, what do you think leads to those types of numbers? It's unique enough to make for a memorable presence within the indie scene. And yeah. when you're mm-hmm. creating indies, like that's really what it takes to become a success. I don't want to say that like the quality of the game isn't important because it obviously is. But, you know, right. once sure. you reach like a certain level of quality, there are still a ton of like really, really great indie games that just don't break through. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this game has such a strong visual identity. You know, I think about other games like Untitled Goose Game, where, you know, that had such like a strong visual identity, such like a strong central premise that you know, it really kind of stuck in people's minds and it really kind of created that word of mouth momentum. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen the the, the strength of um, Cuphead as an, as like a visual identity carry over into the Netflix show, carry over into the mm-hmm. Smash Brothers um, series. It's, you know, it, it's when you find that kind of right combination of 
artistic influences and execution that you know this is a this is a very challenging game it's not the kind of game that i think everybody is going to necessarily enjoy like playing from beginning to end it's very mm-hmm. punishing but i think everybody remembers it once they've seen it mm-hmm. and you know it's it right. becomes like that important part of the like indie legacy and a part of your collection and it's relatively inexpensive too so you know it's not a big 60 dollar sure. yeah. commitment thinking about how other games that either would put people off potentially or wouldn't stand out like there's a reason we remember dead island it's because of how that was packaged and marketed like people mm-hmm. who haven't played that game remember it because of the way it was marketed and there's something about cuphead like when you said six million i was like immediately went back to the kind of fervor that this game the t- the excitement about this game when it was first shown and in the lead up to when it was released which as you say took a while to come after it had been shown understandably so that's not a criticism but the excitement that was there is akin to something like we see for Hollow Knight and Silk Song now. And so six mm, million sure, in, yeah, absolutely. bearing that in mind shouldn't be surprising. The actual surprising thing to me with all those numbers you just read out is it's ridiculous that I see eighty eight percent on open critic and think, huh, I'm surprised that's not a bit higher. That's right, that's right. where this game's kind of got to. It's the success isn't surprising even though it should be by the stature of the game, by the genre of the game. But what it did was it made its case. It stuck in the mind. And what Ryan, you were talking about is there are so many great games out there. It's not a a criticism of a game. It's not an inherent deficit of a game if it comes to market and doesn't sell well. But the ones that do, they have something that sticks in the back of the head. To say, because it's in mind, Hades, within its first three days of release, including two, nearly two years' worth of uh, early access sales reached a million, and that's for Supergiant. That's Hades, which won Game of the Year awards. Right. And Cuphead absolutely did too, but came arguably from nowhere. It, nothing comes from nowhere. I get it. But Supergiant right. had a pedigree. They took years in, pub- in the public eye with early access to make Hades, to f- hone it and refine it, and that still for them seemed like a major success. And to say that I could put Cuphead's figures, if you like, up alongside that shows how good a job the studio did and Microsoft in partnership did of getting the game out there, of it having just a really striking largely aesthetic let's to be fair when you see the game you don't know how it's going to play we've seen games and that are jaw-dropping to look at sound great then you get your hands on them and they don't quite hit and we'll get to whether this one does but the fact that when it came out people were talking about this game of oh it's too hard i'm really disappointed i can't play that that is incredible for a Mm -hmm. game to get to the point where people want to be able to play it and are disappointed when they can't that's some like for this game to be the first game from this studio, a, a core sort of family at the the center of it, who are putting out a game that people just want to be able to play because they've seen a trailer for it or an advert for it or whatever. Um, and and thinking about other indies, there are so few that have got the sort of cachet and aesthetic and an immediate appeal to end up with a Netflix show and not just like a hypothetical. Right we've bought the rights to, but no, here's an actual Netflix show. And all right, Netflix makes shows out of everything, but to pluck Cuphead out, it's like, what would be a good example? Shovel Knight. That character has grown Mm -hmm. bigger than the game it came from in terms of recognition. And Cuphead's absolutely done that. Sorry. I know that's a lot, but this game is a lot to kind of take in how, where it kind of, how it rose to this sort of place in gaming's indie spaces is quite astonishing. Really. 
it, it reminded me a lot of uh, the initial uh, release. Well, I guess maybe the early access period, but then official release of Stardew Valley when that first mm-hmm. came out, where it was like, here's how many Harvest Moon likes had been made on you know, Steam, you know what I mean? There's quite quite a few of them, and there's certainly a lot more now after Stardew, but that game just kind of took over the entire consciousness of that arena for a while. It was on the front pages of Kotaku and IGN and Polygon, like this indie game made by one guy, you know, uh, like it, it was all of a sudden everything that everybody was talking about in the indie space, and it felt very similar when Cuphead came out that it was like, oh, this game is this graphical and art wonder mm. and the music's incredible and everything you've heard and seen it comes through, but then it became, it kind of, it grew legs from there and became more of its own self-propelling machine of like, Oh wow. If you get into this and like, it is hard, it's difficult, but it has gameplay that people, like you said, are propelled to want to see mm. and to want to make their way through. Very interesting. Cause, cause obviously like you said, Ryan, and then you, you supported too, James with like, that's not something that happens to a lot of very well-crafted and good and striking indie games. So like you said, I think the marketing behind that was, was probably a, a huge part of it. So talking about the art style and graphics, we're, this is going to kind of be a twofold conversation we're going to have here. Taz from the forum said, uh, when I was five or six years old, the kid next door showed me World of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse on the Mega Drive. We didn't have a Mega Drive at home, and seeing this cartoon come to life was a really magical moment for me. We played through that game together over and over again. I played Cuphead at the slightly older age of 33, and when I first booted it up, it took me straight back to those memories of playing World of Illusion. Just because it's just this really magical, joyous, vivid cartoon that pops off the screen. I always have a big smile on my face when I'm playing it. Cuphead is such a feel-good game for me and takes me back to a much simpler time, even though it has this ghastly, sadistic level of difficulty. I've still not finished it. That reminds me of my first time seeing the game. When the first time I saw Cuphead on the screen, I was instantly taken back. I had a VHS copy of multiple Popeye cartoons for when I was a child. And the one specifically I remember was Popeye versus Sinbad the Sailor. And I used to watch this cartoon over and over and over again. And it just ingrained in my memory. And going back to it now, I don't have as much fondness for it. Is that the one where Popeye's competing for the last Ultraman doll? Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, That's uh, actually... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so when I saw Cuphead and I saw this style of art, I was like, wow, this is like that, that. It just brought me back to that moment. There's a really interesting thing where since Toy Story came out, any game that's gone for anything that could be approximated as a Pixar aesthetic has mm-hmm. kind of been compared. And it's frequently been said time and time again, you know, Kenna was a, a recent example of, oh, we're at Pixar yeah, sure. level now. And it's like, we might be like, not to, to diss any of those games, but are we comparing it to Toy Story or are we comparing it to like modern day Pixar? Like mm-hmm. not Lightyear because that's a kind of different sort of take, but um, Inside Out or something like that. Because those are sure. kind of two very different standards of, of animation. Here, we're not looking, there's a certain amount of fidelity that comes with that. It's pushing pixels that kind of requires that. And here, well, what we've seen time and time again, if you go for a strong art style, whether that's evoking something from the past or something entirely new, you end up not having to worry about fidelity. And actually, in this case, they put a filter over the way the game looks to give it the impression of that kind of the the film artifacts and mm-hmm. debris yeah. across the film and everything. So you actually end up ostensibly downgrading the picture to make it look more like what it actually should. And I think, again, it just goes to show not just because it evokes the past, but if you go for a strong art style, in this case, aping a particular art style, which we're going to come on to in a second, you go for that. Yes, there's nostalgia, etc. But that art style worked back then 
for a reason. It was appealing to people. Mm-hmm. And it still works now because those sorts of things don't tend to lessen over time necessarily. There's reasons why art styles can come in and out of favor and rightly should be criticized and, and etc. But in terms of that art style was inherently appealing to an audience back then, and it still is now. And to recognize that and to go for a, a strong art style, you can see where the, the creative instinct comes uh, to play there. Sure. I was playing this yesterday and mm-hmm. my wife commented, oh, this looks like a really old game. And mm-hmm. I just thought it was a really interesting comment because games never pass through a period where they looked like this, but this does definitely look like old media. Like it's meant to look yeah. like something that is not of sure. this decade, but it's not, it's not a time period. And it's not like an evolution of the technology that games like yeah. participated in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think back to like the legacy of this style of game, like this, this exact type of game, like I don't think could have existed before the HD era because, you know, we've seen, games that do a pretty good job of emulating hand-drawn animation. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the Aladdin and Lion King games on mm, the Super sure. Nintendo and how closely those kind of sat to the uh, the animated films that they were based on. They had some kind of mm. crossover in personnel as well and you know some of the same drawings and, and reference material that yeah. was used to create both of them. And it created these like really authentic feeling experiences, which is Still totally, pretty magical totally. considering the technology, but like you wouldn't look at those old games and then mistake them for the source material. Like they're still no. very much drawn out of pixels, which is fine and beautiful in its mm-hmm. own way, but like they're not interchangeable in that same way. Whereas yeah. like once you get into the HD era, then the consideration of pixels and of kind of limits on your like animation frames and stuff like that, like still there are technical limits, but like the technical Mm -hmm. limits are so much higher and impact the kind of Mm. the fidelity or limit the fidelity so much less than they did back then that like you are able to put something out there that, you know, that does approximate. And, you know, there's, there have been other games that I have a thing out of Army Krog, I think was the name of it, the claymation point and click adventure game. Oh my God. Yes. I think, yeah, Army Krog. I haven't, yeah. Wow, Ryan, that just, <laughs> there were some, 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 there was some protein just dissolved in my brain. Some fat cells just <laughs> went there back. Uh, that just reactivated something. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But where you could really see like the, the craftiness of it. Um, and, and, you know, this, this stop motion claymation art style really well preserved um, as early as the original PlayStation, which is, you know, its own kind of magic as well. But uh, for something that, you know, you could, you could play a level of, of Cuphead and tell people it's just a really weirdly formatted 1930s cartoon. And like, they might believe you, they might think it's a very strange subject matter and that's really far ahead of its time as (laughs) far as anticipating future technology trends. But but you know it, it like it looks real in a way that like no games up to that point like really could have the limitations that it's working that it's forcing itself to work within and its commitment to that style yeah. um i think specifically of the genie boss i believe it's Jin, I believe djinn um uh where you're kind of flying through sands and the last section of that boss um the background of of that boss is kind of like this swirling sand with a town in the middle of it they could have committed to the art style and, and everything else for the animations of the character on screen and then done wonderful things with the background to make them look more modern and more that. But they chose to 
like continue that commitment to the style and making them feel like like some of the backgrounds were like diorama scenes from old action movies where mm-hmm. they were clearly handmade models that were mm-hmm. you know miniatures that were having these circular photographs taken around them to to kind of like uh to um to mimic like motion around the side of it. And you, and you see these, these uh, developer stories where they are literally just building these miniatures in order to do things in the style that it was done back then yeah. to preserve that authenticity. And I think that commitment to everything on that level, just, it makes it just feel that much more genuine and, yeah. you know, and just thoughtful in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And um, to, to Ryan's uh, point about uh, like Aladdin is a great example. Art, it was still like pixelated. It still was very much, limited by the technology that was available on Super Nintendo Mega Drive and that kind of thing. But the art style's a pretty good approximation. It, it You look at it and go, that's Aladdin. But also, it's still a 2D platformer, and nothing in Aladdin, the film, looks like that. You don't get this kind of static frame with a character moving all over the place, and then it's slowly just in one dimension, moving you know left to right. The 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 film doesn't look like that. The actual animation doesn't look like that. It's going to go a close-up of a single character. It's going to pull back and show, you know, it's going to change the size of the characters on the screen, depending upon what it's trying to show. It's going to pull back when they're on the carpet and you need to see the movement. And it's it's still 2D animation, but they always give the impression that it's a 3D world. Whereas mm-hmm. with a 2D platformer, it feels constrained, deliberately so technically and in terms of gameplay. And the beautiful thing about this is it not only looks like what it's trying to evoke, but by necessity, because of the way they animated those things, a lot of it was panning shots, single direction movement, um, still, Mm -hmm. and and with a scrolling background, because that's how they could make movement was to put a background on a, a, a projector, essentially, and kind of scroll from one side to the other. That's how you created movement when you didn't have another option, when you didn't have the th- where ha- hand-drawn animation would go with, you know, Disney's mm-hmm. sort of 90s era kind of peak of that kind of animation at the time. And so, yeah, it, it's it's a very different thing, I think. I completely get the point that this evokes something old, but yeah, it absolutely makes use of every single aspect of modern technical advancement to be able to be what it is i think and and that's a that's a really great uh, transition point to talk about the style of animation and um so i'm going to give this just a little bit of a preamble very brief that um we're going to be talking about the 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 complications with the fleischer style of animation which we're going to get into in a minute and and we are saying this as three white male individuals and we have the the um basically the ability to to view this style of animation without a lot of the historical context and the stereotyping and racism with the style of animation uh, we, viewing it from the lens that we're viewing from um, does not allow us to necessarily give it the gravity and the weight and focus that that people who have been maligned by this style of animation could feel. Um, so when talking about this, we're going to be talking about the problems that uh, historically with the style of animation and, and what uh, and where that led to justified criticisms of kind of the attitude of the developer. So I'm going to be um, reading a quote here from uh, Yusuf Cole wrote an article for unwinnable uh, called Cuphead and the racist specter of Fleischer animation. And I cut out this quote from it that I'm going to read now. When asked in a Rolling Stone interview about the unfortunate associations of Cuphead's 1930s aesthetic, lead inking artist for the game Maya Modlenauer replies, it's just visuals and that's about it. Anything else happening in that area, we're not versed in it. 
But these visuals are weighed down by the history that brought them into being, despite the developers' best efforts at stripping them of more overt caricatures that are rife in cartoons for most of the first half of the 20th century. By sanitizing its source material and presenting only the ostensible inoffensive bits, Studio MDHR ignores the context and history of the aesthetic it so faithfully replicates. Playing as a black person, ever aware of the way that we have historically been and continue to be depicted in all kinds of media, I don't quite have that luxury. Instead, I see a game that's haunted by ghosts, not those confined to its macabre brass fights, but the specter of black culture, appropriated first by the minstrel set, then by the Fleischers, Disney, and others, twisted into the caricatures that have helped define American cartoons for the better part of a century. And that was Yusuf Cole that said that. Another quote that Ethan Gatch wrote in an article uh, for Kotaku, in which he's referencing uh, Yusuf Cole's article for Unwinnable, um, art doesn't arise out of nothing from no one and from nowhere. People create it. The dream of being able to look to the past and extricate what we find free from baggage is understandable. But as Cole shows, can have the unintended consequence of compounding the sin where characters of color were originally depicted with racist imagery. They now risk not getting depicted at all. And that was a quote from Ethan Gatch. I was admittedly aware of yet ignorant to the effect of this style of animation until this conversation uh, kind of began after the release of Cuphead. As I said before, talking about this from my personal lens, I had the luxury of remembering a Popeye cartoon that I enjoyed, mm-hmm. you know, from my childhood. Like that was my context for it. Right. I did not have the overhanging feeling of, wow, this is a style that was essentially used to stereotype and subjugate my culture. From my personal perspective, I had the luxury of not having that weight upon me while viewing it. And when reading these articles and, and, and doing research and looking into it, I completely I can understand with and I can understand, excuse me, and uh, attempt to be better at relating with with kind of the emotions that seeing this art style kind of reused and rebrought up could bring for somebody. And um, I think it's just an important part of the conversation that we do our absolute best to acknowledge that um, while also making sure that it doesn't doesn't outweigh the oh, boy, this game looks pretty part of the conversation, because the the way this game looks could make make people feel a very specific bad type of way. Yeah, for sure. Like, I've never really been a fan of the 1930s style, this, you know, Fletcher style in particular of animation. I have some kind of early memories of like old VHS tapes with you know, old rerun cartoons, not quite as far back, but like far enough back to where the two styles were still kind of intermingling something a little bit more modern than the Fletcher style, but, you know, still had a lot of the kind of rubberiness of the characters and, and stuff like that. Maybe it, you know, maybe it was this, this old style in particular, and I'm just modernizing it in my own head. But, uh, but, you know, I was always a little bit like something about it always felt a little like uncomfortable to me, even as a kid. Like part of it is like you can kind of sense the like the hostility in it a little bit. Like there's a there's a sense of um, characters looking like they do in like uh, like political cartoons and stuff like that, where like people are meant to be like exaggerated, unappealing. There's the specter of drunkenness in a lot of the old cartoons, mm-hmm. the the ones that I you know watched when I was you know not contemporaneously, but years years and years past the fact as a kid and you know as a kid like you don't really know what to make of drunkenness it seems kind of scary <laughs> and and so you know going back as an adult and kind of watching some of these older cartoons and comics from the era and 
propaganda from the era as well, like live action, mm-hmm. short films and stuff like that. Like there's a lot of the, um, this kind of, this kind of otherification of black culture in America in particular, um, kind of interwoven with a lot of the, with a lot of the kind of like uh, class hostility of the, of the great depression, the 1930s. Sure. Um, yep. You know, recently I was going back and I was watching, cause I also grew up with, um, old VHS tapes of the Red Skelton show, uh, kind of an old mm-hmm. vaudeville style comedian in the, uh, it, you know, in the vein of Milton Berle and Bob Hope. And, you know, he, I, I always, I, I always really loved his, um, his stuff growing up and going back to it recently. His most famous character is Freddy the Freeloader, who is like a, an unhoused person who is kind of going through all these adventures. And, you know, it's, it's not played with outright hostility, but you can tell that there is this this kind of distrust of people in this like severely severely underserved like economic class, um, mm-hmm. stemming from the 1930s and this this sense that like everyone was really kind of I don't know at each other's throats um, in a class way because like there just wasn't enough to go around and so everyone was very you know so you know, I I don't know I guess just as somebody who um, has revisited some old media recently and has kind of come to it with a mm-hmm. different lens. I think in particular, the things about this game that, you know, because I think that there is something to be said for like reinterpreting old symbols and perhaps like revitalizing old styles and, you know, stripping out some of the, um, some of the like harmful baggage. And so as times continue to march forward there are more positive examples of a given style than there are like negative examples just via new artists kind of coming in and and filling mm-hmm. up the space with positivity instead of you know not to bury the old stuff you know you have to remember your history right. but but I, I i was interested in um a lot of the stuff from this era in particular would associate black culture with a kind of with a kind of like degenerativeness with uh, gambling mm-hmm. and the jazz music was said to have this kind of like hypnotic effect on young people that would make them, you know, go crazy or become violent or something like that. You know, this, this kind of like old white hand wringing from the the culture at the time, um, unfortunately. And like going back to Cuphead, it's interesting that like these like less overt stereotypes are still like very much, you know, the the main boss of the game is a gambling themed boss who, you know, his entire like suite of sub bosses that are contained within his stage are all kind of like, like a seven deadly sins of things that people in the 1930s were like afraid of, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. There's the, uh, the drunkenness, there's the gambling, there's the smoking, which I guess is probably okay back then, but like we have feelings about it now. I feel like he's really like, he's pretty explicitly depicted as being like a cab Calloway type of figure. Like he has the, that kind of cab Calloway mustache. He's got the, mm-hmm. his kind of performance has this, this energy that I think a lot of people put into this um, big band show leader type of character yeah. from, from back in that day. Sure. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting that like they didn't do like the, I, I mean, at least to my eyes, I could be missing out on some stuff, but like they didn't do like the big, racial caricatures i might have to think back to the genie and how that fits into it but i'll i don't know maybe i'll revise this the sentiment later but um they didn't do the like the big racial caricatures but like they still had all of these indicators of um yeah of these kind of racial hostilities which 
consuming in like 2017 and beyond, like jazz music is no longer thought of in the same way. You know, it's not like maybe those symbols mean different things in today's culture. Regardless, like it is a little bit of like an uh, of a, an uncritical view of something that does have like a ton of of baggage involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think back to sort of my history, and there's definitely different eras of my life where I would have responded to the original cartoons that this is based on, the original animation style that this is based on, completely differently as a kid. And and I think uh, it's notable that there was just no one in my life who would have had a problem with these sorts of cartoons and the stereotypes of all kinds, but particularly racial stereotypes that are in. It would never have been pointed out to me that that was a problem. And that is horrendous to think about that that's that can Mm. just be the case that i don't see a problem with it because no one's telling me there's a problem with it and then i think yeah by the time i would have noticed oh that's a really bad racial stereotype in the way that now on disney plus and the like there are warnings in front of certain episodes of cartoons to say there's some problems with representation here and in some cases they've just taken episodes out altogether from particular shows and cartoons that are on there and that kind of gets to the some of the nub of of what Yusuf Cole discussed in in his article, which is it would be easy to see the the negative stereotype, the atrocious, overt negative stereotype that I would have seen twenty years ago, and said that's a problem, and the solution to be we'll take it out and it's fine now. Right, you can just lift something out of of its context, throw it away, and say now the rest of this is all fine. The metaphor there, I guess, that that works is throwing the baby out with the bath water. You want to get Mm -hmm. rid of the thing you don't want. The problem is it's all so intrinsically linked. And I think the fantastic thing is that this conversation can happen. There are some people who don't want this conversation. They just wanted the nice nostalgic art style and, oh, isn't that beautiful? But Mm -hmm. when this was first shown, there were, to my memory, there were specific characters that were pointed out and said that, that, and that. You may not know it. It may just be an art style to you, but those are based on racial stereotypes. And there were some changes right. to the character yep. design. And and specifically, what I, I really took to heart about Yusuf Cole's article, and shame on me for not knowing better sooner, but thank you for, for this discussion being there to enlighten someone like me who wants to learn, wants to improve themselves, wants to understand where me and by necessity, the, the people I come from have through ignorance or through malice, um, made life more difficult and more and harmed people, essentially. Right. It harmed yep. large groups of people. Not personally, but that doesn't matter. The fact that I could watch this and be unaffected by it up until the point where I recognized the negative stereotype and then I felt uncomfortable about it, it right. never affected me in a way that was materially negative upon my existence in life. And that's the thing here. It absolutely affected people like that. And to be able to cherry pick out the the uh, imagery that you now are told is potentially harmful and say, well, this is all fine now, right? Where you're evoking a very specific period of time where, as mentioned, people were harmed by these representations. They were vicious rep- misrepresentations of entire groups of people whether it's personal or not it's got an incredible negative impact and to say well Mm. okay you've complained about these parts well we've taken them out it's fine now it's like no you're still even if it wasn't that 
the attitudes and the the attitude towards the music and the attitude towards the lifestyle are still inbuilt there without the the specific stereotypes. You're still evoking something. I'm trying to think of a of a of a of some examples. You know, you can strip the specific imagery out of war, but when you're showing war, it's still war. The fact that you took the flags off, the fact that you took the the um, specific sides of the the uh, confrontation out, doesn't mean you're taking away the harm that's done by that. And I think the fact that this discussion, when the game was shown, then when the game was released, and now subsequently, you know, with DLC and us covering this now, it is so important to have this discussion because, yes, there are some people who push back negatively and that's for them to work out and 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 for the rest yep. of us to try and help, I guess, move past or, or, or better understand. But for people who want to learn, who want to better themselves, who want to understand that nothing happens in isolation, no video game can be taken out of the context of how it's made, the context of how it's uh, marketed and displayed and presented to us uh, and just say, no, this is just fun. No, everything comes from somewhere. And that we have places like Unwinnable uh, specifically, who are a great publication, um, but places like Kotaku, one of the most well-known websites in games media covering this sort of stuff um, and, and many other sites. And the fact that over the past, certainly since this game came out, I would argue the past five years, we have seen more and more instances where it's not enough to discuss this. You have to have people involved who know what they're talking about. And me saying, here's how this affected me and here's why it isn't as important to me it is frankly no no good i can talk about this game and i can talk around it but i can't talk about its impact on me when it when this aspect didn't affect me in the way that it does others yeah absolutely i think um i think what both of you said would basically be exactly my my opinions on it too and and that's not to take responsibility away from myself to not talk about it it's just it's Mm -hmm. that we really are um speaking from our own personal experiences and there is a problem when um when your own personal experiences, if you can just say, oh, well, that didn't affect me. So mm-hmm. take out the bad bits, like you said, James, and, and then and it's all fine now. Whether intention was not there, um, the the source material they are using that is being used as reference has a very specific connotation to a lot of different people. And to not recognize those opinions as valid and problematic is is a problem. Like I said, we us three are not the authorities to speak on that. However, um, we wanted to make sure that it was a, a sizable part of the conversation regarding the art style. We're going to transition into talking about the music in this game. Um, so there was a there was a great series of articles on a site that I was unfamiliar with until uh, preparing for the show called The Whole Note. Um, it was a wonderful music website. I read a bunch of things on there this morning, actually, um, that interviewed Chris Madigan, who was the composer for the music for Cuphead. So I'm just going to read a quote from him. Um, says the approach to the music of Cuphead is very different than music of most games. There are no real precise timings to line things up with, and the music is not reactive or dynamic as would be for more typical uh, would be more typical for games. It was more important for us to capture a vibe as opposed to following the action. So I ended up just writing standard three to four minute jazz tunes. Typically, a player won't even reach the end of a tune on a given stage since the tunes are long enough that the player has either died or had to restart or would have already completed the level. 
Chris Madigan goes on to say, the only style guidelines I was given were 1930s big band. As the game expanded to include levels and world maps, I started to think outside of that one specific era and style, and we decided on ragtime for the platforming levels and numerous stylistic iterations of the main four-note theme for the world maps. In some cases, as in Shrines, they just said, do whatever you like. Um, I find that um, that last quote, the do whatever you like, to be to be pretty wild, because <laughs> when I view the music in this game, I view it as like, like it's almost like an album from start to finish with this like very specific intent for every track. How how do you both feel about about Cuphead's music? Does that does the like I just put down jazz arrangements and killer drumming because it's all I can remember those when you start those tracks and you just hear them the the low toms of the drums boom 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 and yeah. it like really builds to that chaotic threshold almost instantly and yeah I it, it works for me so well when paired with the gameplay. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of screaming muted trumpets whenever they could be integrated into kind of older uh, jazz style yeah. pieces like this. Like I'm a big jazz fan myself. I'm not that much into like big band style jazz, but I mean the the songs in here are really kind of expertly composed. They're exciting in the moment. I think ultimately like the one that stands out to me the most is the map music from the first Inkwell Isle, which is kind of the starting area. This is such like a fun, mm-hmm. jaunty, like a Mickey Mouse type tune. I regularly get it stuck in my head and it's um yeah, yeah really, really good. It's interesting. I was thinking about this when I was playing it this afternoon. When I'm playing the game, I absolutely notice the the rhythm, but it's far more the sound effects that I'm listening out for. You know, mm-hmm. in the the reaction I have is the sound effect that hits when you uh, when you parry that kind of thing. I, I'm listening out for and noticing that much more than the music. And I think I absolutely ad- adored the music for this. But I think in the same way that the aesthetic struck me, it was much more as part of here's the trailer and doesn't the music fit perfectly with those aesthetics because I recognise them together. Um, mm-hmm. When I actually get into the level. I think just because of the the style of game it is, and and I I say it every time I don't tend to notice music unless it's generally on the really bad end of the scale because <laughs> it it does kind of fit into the background and and it, as long as it fits I, I don't then tend to notice it and where I do notice it is watching the trailer or in the menu screen that kind of thing because as as you just mentioned as soon as the level gets going it's chaotic so quickly that. Mm-hmm. It only just struck me today that it's not reactive and dynamic to what's going on, and it doesn't need to be because it's zero to a hundred so quickly that there is no let up, there is no dynamic action there, other than I guess probably dulling the sounds when you get hit to let you know you've been hit, and that kind of mm-hmm. the 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 sort of hollow, almost bowling ball sound when you get hit, you know that that kind of sound that that strike the striking sound if you like yeah it's that that sticks out much more and and a lot of it including in all honesty for some levels like the art that's on screen and what's actually going on i go straight into a almost like a, i've got my focus sounds mm-hmm. daft so far at the front of the screen i feel like it's the same for my ears my ears are so attuned to the sound effects that the music's sure. just happening behind it and and that sounds like a daft thing to say but when I listen for it, I notice it's there and it's great, but I'm so focused on not the music that it, it just yeah. sits in the background alongside the animation and just does a good job of together forming an aesthetic that is a canvas that the gameplay takes place on. It's funny you mentioned it like that because there were a couple of bosses that I actually had to turn the sound off 
in mm. order to get past because the, I found the music distracting mm. from what I was trying to do. I specifically remember because I, I just played through it again maybe a week or two ago. Yeah. What the the second phase of Doctor Call's robot after you get the robot down and he's kind of in his own little UFO, mm-hmm. it becomes such a bullet hell game where there's just so many projectiles and there's these yeah. like kind of shock traps he's setting up and you have to kind of go around and up and down. And it, that second phase of the boss fight, I actually had to literally turn the uh, volume down on my TV just to get through it because the because I was being distracted by that. Yeah. Now, other things like sound effects in different boss fights, you'll need those sound cues to know when particular attacks are coming or when particular, you know, projectiles are being, you know, are, are coming through. And it is always nice for that parry thwap effect. So, yeah. you know, that you hit that parry correctly. The way I think about the music for this game and Ryan mentioned it right off the bat that the Inkwell Isle theme song, I could. I can hum that in my head all day long. Um, the flourishes, like when you finish a level, like the knockout or like when the flag is raised and is, and that chorus just shouts cuphead. Like, oh, I love that stuff. But if like when just listening to the soundtrack in the background, I was this morning that I love all the songs, but I was continually having to check my phone to be like, wait, which stage is this mm-hmm. from? Yeah. Because I couldn't, yeah. I don't have that particular identified song for each boss. If that makes sense. I'm kind of surprised that these songs aren't reactive to the different stages of the boss fights as well. Yeah. Like I could have sworn yeah. they do such like a good job mm-hmm. of visually overhauling everything. I wonder if the stage play is reactive like musically or. Oh, yeah. That I one does feel is. like like far more distinct stages than everything else does. It's interesting that they were able to, I guess, apparently kind of like bypass that without any of us clocking it. <laughs> So as far as other like sound effects and stuff, I mean, the game, like we talked about it with the visual style, it's the same way with the music. It seems to be very consistent and, and has a very distinct vision throughout down to the 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 way that Porkrine speaks um, that, you know, that really low gravelly yeah. welcome, <laughs> you know, that the, the, all those vocal effects that would have been in those old cartoons um, to just the like the the nonstop popping of the finger guns. I mean like that because you're basically if you guys play the way I play, I'm just my pointer finger on my mm-hmm. right hand is just in a claw grip on that right trigger. Yep. And you're just constantly hearing that pop, 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 pop. And it becomes part of like, you know, when you know the fight is starting or when you know you got that knockout and like it just you can tell those sound effects do a lot just building the whole experience. Um, uh, Again, I, I don't we don't need to go down and talk about every sound effect in the game, but those are the ones that stick out to me. This week, my Xbox Series X controller, the right trigger now sticks. I'm holding it down so long that when I take my finger off, it just stays down. (laughs) Just sticks. That's your Cuphead controller. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I switched over to another controller I've got, which is a wired one with uh, back pedals and stuff like that. That one's absolutely fine. But yeah, the actual controller that came with my console has been absolutely fine until this week when I started playing Cuphead. And as soon as I, because I'm holding it so (laughs) tight that I'm not Mm -hmm. surprised it ended up sticking. Well, I am kind of build quality obviously to do with some extra uh sort of tweaking but um but yeah it's just my entire playthrough is it's the sound effects that come to the fore it's as you say there's a rhythm to yeah you're firing constantly you're jumping around um the the different noises when you get hit or when you parry the knockout sound effect that comes in which is just like one of the best sounds which we are going to talk about when we come to the DLC in a little bit, because there's one moment that I just have to, I, I, I scream laughed when I played this game, the DLC, but we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, the knockout sound is, it's very, it's very distinct, right? Like when you hit that and then the animation of the boss just changes. Sometimes the bosses are, you know, evaporating. Sometimes they're just crying because they lost or whatever. Like it's just that, that hit of the knockout and the ding, ding, ding and the big visual flourish on the screen. It, it does, it, it, it does a lot to add to the experience. 
The only weakness in the sound effects that I could really pick up on is they probably could have used a few more like intro lines for the beginning of matches, especially mm-hmm. when you're doing like quick oh. retry cycles. You end up hearing the same lines very, very frequently. A brawl is surely yeah. brewing. <laughs> I can tell you that about a million times in my living room. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, for sure. No, those do get re- recycled pretty quickly. Um, because again, like you said, Ryan, and we're going to get to that right here in the gameplay. Like you're, well, yeah, we'll get, we'll get into it. Um, so, so the gameplay, uh, as we talked about before, they have, it's essentially a, um, a boss rush game, uh, with these run and gun levels, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but you're basically starting in and you, you're either the leather levels, either just a, stagnant screen that the boss moves around on or it's a scrolling left to right situation um the very there's not really the only one that really bucks that trend in the uh initial release is the uh the honeybee fight where you're kind of fighting a little bit more vertically mm-hmm. um at one point but essentially it's the same it's a platform you jump from platform to platform and you're firing off bullets at the boss from your finger guns so it's it's a real simple idea you know you're kind of moving with the, you know the the eight directions you know diagonal you know the four cardinals and then diagonal in between and you've got a a duck and a dodge and a parry and that's pretty much it i mean it's not it's the the gameplay doesn't vary from stage to stage that much unless of course we have a few of the the stages boss stages where you're flying a plane and becomes a lot more like a traditional shoot 'em up but yeah it's uh it's it's essentially a you've got your limit of tools to your disposal can you take down um these bosses how so just just initial, you know, you pick up the game, you play it for the first time, you walk in and you're going to fight the the vegetable medley right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You're going to fight that, uh, you know, the potato, the onion and the carrot. Uh, first time playing the game. How, how did it feel? Do you, do you do you like the way Cuphead moves around? Do you find it? Um, how's it all feel to you, James? Yeah, I very quickly recognize the kind of shooter mechanic of just keep firing at all times. There's absolutely schmops where you need to take your your hand off the trigger, but generally fire all the time, and then focus on movement. And and in that sense, what I ended up doing and was just, I'll just keep firing, I'll just keep dodging, and the bullets will hit the boss. Like I never used the lock-on mechanic, almost ever. Mm-hmm. I tried initially to try and like lock my direction of shooting, but almost always it was just, I can't focus on all of that at once. And I think that's what struck me initially was, I'm focusing on jumping, moving, Parrying, which is is weird in that the way that Cuphead and Mug, Mugman parry is you have to be already jumping and airborne in order to then be able to parry by doing a second tap on that. And that felt really counterintuitive. It's fine once you get used to it, or it was for me, it right. was fine once I got used to it. But once the DLC came out, going back to it felt just like, felt hard again. Mm-hmm. And and I think that was what struck me. The, it's a relatively tidy mechanic set. But if you're trying to focus on and use all of it, it's too much for me. It obviously isn't for all people and having that flexibility for the people who really can handle all of that going on at once and can move and control where they're shooting and parry and use dash as well without flying into something. It's too much for me and also switching between the two weapons and using your, um, your specials as well. Uh, generally it was a case for me of just wait until I've got the super move to use rather than the special attack, the EX attack. Mm. Um, so I I made a conscious effort to minimize the complexity of it for my playstyle. is I guess the best way I would describe how I kind of first arrived at the game and certainly struggled initially but found a playstyle that worked for me. 
Yeah, I was very similar to that. I'm curious, Ryan, did you did you engage with the alternate guns or alternate the firing setups or maybe some of the different special meters or did you kind of stick with a with what the the tool set they gave you? Yeah, you know, actually I found my my preferred combination of weapons and um kind of stuck with that for the rest of the game. I like having the homing missiles for my mm-hmm. primary weapon mm-hmm. because then you can just kind of like shoot and forget and not worry about aiming. And then um, for my alternate fire, I have the the big heavy balls that kind of have like a very severe arc uh, downwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yep. that kind of bounce a little bit along the ground because those do like like insane damage. Huge, and yeah. you have to be yeah. like mm-hmm. very you know intentional about aiming them. But I think mm-hmm. you know between uh, sweep uh, switching between those two, which you could just do at a button press, uh, it makes for a really a really killer combination. I'll, I'll say that the control wise. The first thing that I have to do when I play this game on a new system um, is like I have to change the controls. Like the default controls map all of the all of the functions to the face buttons, mm-hmm. and yeah. I have to put fire on the right trigger because I'm not going to be holding a face button. This isn't Mario Kart Eight. Like we have triggers oh, yeah. for a reason. Yeah, no, same. And then I yep, put absolutely. the uh, the dash on the left trigger because um, I oh, I don't okay. want to be juggling like I don't want to be juggling jump and dash on the same finger like i'd rather just uh rather just have that kind of off to the side as well nice and the only way in which the controls i feel really kind of let me down is that the i think the sticks could use a little bit of a dead zone maybe because Mm. it has that thing like i sometimes experience in fighting games if i'm using a stick for a fighting game which i don't like a thumbstick for a fighting game which i don't usually do but like where you'll you'll kind of quickly flick it in one direction to like turn around and then the momentum of it going back to center will flip your guy back the other way. And so when you're being, you know, when you have to face a certain way to shoot the boss, that could be kind of frustrating taking a two or three turns to kind of realign yourself. Um, But if you're playing with the D pad, not a problem, but if you're using the thumbstick, then um, that can be a bit of an annoyance. I, I I did also remap some buttons, too. But um, the one thing I found that I, I really didn't engage with at all. I mean, I did all of the mausoleums just because I enjoy playing Cuphead. You know, I wanted to play every level and, and do all the stuff. And and some of those parrying mini games of those ghosts that mm-hmm. look really funny and cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really in, enjoyed doing that. But I, I didn't I never had a special like a like a full five you know when you fill up your special meters basically cards from the bottom of the screen that as you do damage and there's an upgrade that you can use to have it slowly fill over time no matter what Mm -hmm. and if you get to all five of them then you have this ex super move and i never equipped any one of those because i just wanted to make sure that when i hit my super move that big bullet came out Mm -hmm. and that was that like that like i just got comfortable with it and Mm -hmm. i just found a very simplistic playstyle. like i i definitely uh by the end of the game i was only buying the things from pork rind shop because they were there but not because yeah. i had any real hope to use it um i did the first time I, I beat the game um i did equip the two extra hearts and less damage charm mm-hmm. um just so i had because i felt like i was getting the i was getting the um the patterns down for the devil uh but i was just like i was always like one heart away and not that far so i did that and then i ended up beating him uh, uh the, the second time around without having to use that but that was kind of a uh, a crutch I'd lean on from time to time when the difficulty got there for me. But as far as the the upgrades and stuff, I, I found them interesting and I found it cool. I found myself actually seeking out YouTube videos of people using them very effectively, like the ones like where the, where the bullet shoots backwards and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it all very interesting, but nothing that I necessarily would engage with. It really reminds me of Vampire Survivors, uh, early access right now, big mm. hit on Steam, where, you know, you are kind of, and I guess this is, 
a lot of bullet hell stuff, but you have all yeah. of these different types of bullets with different functionalities in vampire survivors. There is one that you should intentionally fire in the wrong direction because it travels farther yep. behind you. Um, in this one in cuphead, if you fire in the wrong direction, it does more damage on the way back. Is it kind of boomerangs around? So that is like the mm-hmm. strategy there as well. But, um, they all have different kind of functional uses, but like you're not really aiming them most of the time. You're just kind of focusing on like moving the character and avoiding and then just trusting that the bullets are going in like more or less the right direction. When you watch a lot of the speed runs, there's a great video too um, of watching the Molden Hours react to a speedrunner um, and how they're kind of breaking the game as they go through, finding glitches that the Molden Hours didn't even know were there. It's kind of fun to watch them, their brains get broken by it. Uh, there's a good one for Psychonauts too about that too, by the way, which we recently covered. But anyway, and uh, yeah, the the one of the main strategies was that reverse bullet because of how much more damage it did, and they could get these bosses trapped in these frame cycles. And so, oh, it was really neat. I am not good enough to do any of that. I'm more of a stubborn Cuphead player to where I just this is the way I'm going to do it, and I'm going to find a way to make that work, and it doesn't matter if it takes me a thousand times to 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 get it. Kind of person. I, I absolutely had the homing shot on i can't remember what it's called actually but the the homing shot was my go-to i think there was one or two bosses where i ended up changing that but my backup was actually the sort of shotgun the sort of five spread five i think it's five five spread very yeah, very short close, distance right? yeah um which i did actually take the time to kind of aim because you can cover a good sort of third of the screen with that very close to you so for clearing out groups of enemies or where they're they're putting a lot of enemies on the screen that you can get rid of i found that useful as the backup but um so this week after i beat the dlc i went back and there is a very specific like side quest in the dlc where you need to unlock a cursed charm that you can use mm-hmm. uh, or a broken charm sorry you then charm, need to yeah, get yeah. it repaired to a curse charm, and that curse charm sets you at one HP. And every time you stop firing, which includes dashing, um, it will, or using your super, it will um, change the weapon you're using. So I have mm-hmm. had to get very used to all the different types of we- weapons quite quickly. It's a bit of that, I guess, Bastion's the kind of go to example for me of. It kind of feels like there should be. By my experience, it should be, oh, this is the obvious best setup to have, but actually everything's viable. And yeah, if you're looking to do, you know, if you need to get under two minutes for an S rank, you need to be doing more damage than the homing shot will generally Mm -hmm. allow. You can Mm -hmm. get through in under two minutes on some bosses, but sometimes that's just not going to be possible. So it's really interesting to see people flock to different weapons when they're trying to play in different ways and having like this the side quest from the dlc is actually really good for that because like always when a game can force you without it feeling like too much of a deficit to mix up your playstyle, whether that's with achievements or with challenge uh, levels or like this a specific side quest it, it it just forces you to find new ways of playing and it's really really enlightening and satisfying to do so the the homing shot is called Chaser, Thank you. by the way. Um, I just don't want anybody accusing us of being fake gamers. I knew it was a C, but I couldn't. I was like, charge? No, it's not charge. But <laughs> no, I, yeah, couldn't, Chaser, I couldn't remember to save my life. <laughs> um, I definitely didn't just look that up on a Wikipedia page for <laughs> sure. So uh, the parrying mechanic becomes very big in the gameplay. Um, one of the things I want to talk about was uh, 
Uh, so basically, they're these these pink either projectiles. Sometimes they're in the environment. Um, I know like one of the early other bosses, like um, the only way because in order to get the S rank, you have to get three successful parries. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get uh, three successful parries on one of these earlier bosses is that as it changes form, it uh, pops three question marks above its head. Mm-hmm. All three are those pink question marks. So you have to you have to parry off them to get it. But one of the things that was talked about a lot um, by a lot of people who suffer from colorblindness yeah. is that this creates a very difficult situation for them because uh, the the being able to distinguish the pink from the rest of the colors on screen um, was was very difficult and not having the option to change that was was, was problematic for people. I found the pairing system to be uh I, I really enjoyed it. It made me kind of go for jumps and attacks that I wouldn't normally go for to try to hit that parry. Yeah. Also, the timing window on it is very tight. So you have yeah. to it takes practice. You want to get used to it. Once you kind of dial it in, though, it almost feels automatic. Like you just mm-hmm. kind of get that rhythm to it. But um, but yeah, with like the first few times you're trying that, you're like, oh, I'm never going to be able to get this. And then. Yeah. But that's kind of cuphead in a kind of in a, in a short summation there. Uh, I I always would use it because it builds up your super meter quicker and I'd fire mm-hmm. off the super pretty much right away um, just to use that try to beat the boss but it, it, it was a bit of an interesting idea that the way to parry and the way to gain super is to kind of rush yourself into harm's way and I thought that was pretty interesting because you I'd always find myself going for a a, a pink projectile that I thought I could hit and I'd hit it. And the next thing you know, here comes something else. And it just, you know, punishes me for my, uh, for my attempt. Yeah. I mean, same goes with super move. I used the, the kind of horizontal beam that you can put out. Okay. Um, yep. And you have to be very careful when you use that, because if you come out of that, just as a, a projectile is going to hit you or an enemy is going to hit you, there's very little getting out of it. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's very much a risk reward type situation where you think you're going in for a parry, but not only do you have to get there safely, you also have to be able to get out safely as well. Sure. And pretty cool that they gave uh, Miss Chalice an entirely new set of specials yeah. and um, new form of parrying that is like a, yep. a dash that doesn't require you to be in mm-hmm. the air as well. So kind of a recontextualizes some of those early challenges. Some of the parries that were pretty easy with cup, Cuphead and, Mig- and Mugman uh, were very challenging with uh, with Miss mm-hmm. Chalice. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about her a little bit more too in a bit because, um, uh, and we're actually as we talk about difficulty because uh, I found that after playing through, I uh, there was an achievement for beating. I think it was either fifteen or twenty bosses with Miss Chalice. So I went back to the previous aisles and was playing through, mm-hmm. and it does having her chart like dash parry mechanic does seemingly break a lot of those earlier fights to where you are just, um, you're just destroying some of these bosses that might've given you a trouble, given you trouble with that the initial parry mechanic. So it's, it's pretty fun to have that option at your disposal. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the difficulty, this is something that was talked about a lot. And in fact, a lot of our correspondents um, had a lot to say about the difficulty. So I'm going to read a few people who wrote into the Canarins forums, which you can go to on canarins.com to contribute to have potentially your uh, submission read on the show. Um, Mark FM 007 said Cuphead's been on my radar since E3 2014, but I hadn't picked it up until I saw it on the list of upcoming episodes. The art style grabbed my attention. It's absolutely wonderful and a reward in itself where each new level boss and map is beautifully colored and full of expressive, creative and hilarious animations. Along with a brilliant big band soundtrack, it makes the game a joy to behold and five years on still feels like a breath of fresh air. Cuphead feels great to control, and the chaotic gameplay fits the animation and music perfectly. At best, it's a very absorbing experience that will put a huge smile on your face and push you to your limits in a good way. However, big however, after the first island, I found there was an element of randomness that wore my patience pretty thin. I don't mind a challenge if I feel like it's in my hands, but repeatedly getting hit and not really seeing how I could have avoided it winds me up. I'm not saying it's totally random. I'm sure there are people that can avoid everything. That's just been my experience. 
That said, I'm still enjoying it. I'm a glutton for punishment, and the good outweighs the bad. I'm red-green colorblind and haven't had too many issues, only with a few of the smaller projectiles. Not sure if I'll finish it, but I'm glad I gave it a go. Maybe buy a backup controller if you're the type to throw them. And then edit. I've decided not to finish it. <laughs> In the end, the irritation outweighed the fun. It's a shame, as I think I, as I, I like a lot about this game, but the randomness left me feeling like I was getting angry at something outside of my control, something I'm trying to cut out of my life. Sometimes you just have to cut your losses and admit when the bad is outweighing the good. Uh, DeMonth says, this game is a game I constantly say I hate as I'm playing it. Getting creamed with attacks, I felt like I should have dodged over and over again, but nothing else gives me the satisfaction of seeing that knockout. I absolutely love the feeling of slowly understanding attacks that seemed impossible to dodge an hour ago. Barring all the BS, attacks that you need to die to first know they're coming, telegraphs that are way too subtle to see, etc. And man, still want to pour one out to the colorblind players. Seems almost unplayable. Um, just, yeah, to chip in there, um... I absolutely feel uh, the the kind of negative aspect of the ram- randomness that um, Mark FM mentioned initially on every level. Initially, it feels like I couldn't have dodged that, but mm. it really is, for me, learning the patterns. There are absolutely, uh, you've got what would be referred to as RNG in terms of which attacks an enemy is going to do or what order a sub-boss sure. is going to yep. come at you, etc., and I would absolutely have a preferred, and I'd, I'd be sitting there thinking, if I just get this order of attacks or yeah, this order yeah, sure. of mini-bosses, I'll make it through this. But ultimately, that being out of my control meant that I just had to cope with what was being thrown at me, and I did manage. And that's not to say that everyone can. This is not me saying uh, it is possible, but it is very much a question of, uh, and the Dark Souls uh, apologists out there will will recognize uh, this particular one. For me, it was a case of changing the way I think about it. If there's an attack I felt like I should have dodged, okay, I'm very slow at learning this. So my solution was, okay, restarting because I get hit 10 seconds in or dying very, very quickly. That's just part of what this game is. It's right. Yeah, I had to get myself out of the mind of that's unfair, that's BS, that's random, and just cope with, right, this is all just learning, this is all just building muscle memory, I'm learning to type at the moment, and you would be shocked at how slow my progress is, because mm, I want to yeah. be able to touch type, and I've been like a generously four-finger typer for, for far too long, and what mm-hmm. I have to bear in mind is, that's... 30 years of using computer keyboards in a style that I built over 30 years and got quicker and quicker and quicker with. And I'm having to force myself to slow down and learn something new. And that's kind of how I'd equate this here. It absolutely is going to be frustrating if you feel like it's, oh, I just have to die to this. And that seems somehow unfair. No, you, you have to die to it because it's something you've not seen before. And it is kind of just putting yourself in the mindset. That's the only way I can explain where I go is sure. I can't let myself get frustrated. And absolutely, I completely appreciate our last two uh, forum correspondents saying for them, the frustration may just have outweighed the satisfaction that would come far, far down the line. And I think that's a really tough balance to strike and Cuphead goes all out for you're going to get frustrated unless you accept that that's part of the game is the only way I can kind of put it. 
a couple more correspondence on the uh, on the difficulty. Uh, Steve Norman wrote and said, uh, when the Cuphead show arrived on Netflix recently and was as good as it was, it was inevitable that I'd be going back to the sadistic, surreal, and absolutely stunning game that spawned it. And I still hate it just as much as I love it. The brutal difficulty is just how I remembered, but I was a bit surprised at how quickly the perfectly responsive controls became second nature again, allowing you to focus on the relentless trial and error then repeating over and over before you can beat the bit you're on and do it all again on the next. I didn't need to see the end again to get my fill this time around, but this thing is timeless and won't be going anywhere if my masochist stubbornness ever wants more. Finally, from our forum, NZ Gamer Dad one wrote, uh, I first stumbled across Cuphead when looking for recommendations for couch co-op games to play with my wife, who is a casual gamer. I quickly skimmed the reviews, which were very positive, and somewhat foolishly brushed off the references to the game being difficult and purchased the game. After five minutes of playing, I quickly realized we'd bitten off more than we could chew. Almost every level, we couldn't help but say, this is impossible, or we'll never be able to do this. Slowly but surely, we learned the patterns, and after every failure, see that we are getting a little bit further along the progress meter that appears when you die. In fact, without that progress meter, I don't think we would have finished mm-hmm. the game. It's such a simple yet ingenious feature that time after time gave us a glimmer of hope. Our darkest moment was when we reached King Dice. That really did feel too impossible. Having to beat multiple bosses in a row felt overwhelming, especially when coupled the dice roll mechanic on that level, which determined which boss you would face. Then there's also the terrifying start over space, which you'd see having to fight more bosses than necessary. We eventually made it past him and his minions. We were stuck on the final boss for a couple of weeks and found ourselves just trying a handful of times each night before doing something else. The moment finally came when I made it to the devil's final form. My wife had died. It was all down to me. My heart was pounding. My palms were sweating, but I was in the zone. I don't know how I did it, but I beat him. I honestly don't think I've ever felt such elation at finishing a game. It was pure joy. Without a doubt, my mo- one of my most memorable gaming experiences. Um, ju- just on that, uh, I don't think we've mentioned the multiplayer mode. Did either of you play multiplayer at all? Uh, co-op, obviously. I didn't. I- I've seen some multiplayer streams, but I haven't played it myself. That me neither, I have to say. So I, I'm assuming you have the ability to kind of uh, resurrect the other player or something. I, do, I don't particularly yeah, know how it works. Yeah, if you parry off of their heart while they're ascending into heaven, gotcha. then you can revive them. I wondered yeah. why the heart was that same pink. That makes perfect sense now. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, so d- difficulty was one of the core conversation starters about this game Mm -hmm. and still is in a lot of ways Um, a lot of people were saying that when miss chalice came out as part of the dlc that was their answer to a quote unquote easy mode which i don't think you could even call that easy and we can talk about that in a little bit but um so how how do you guys feel about the difficulty in this game um for me personally i um began to realize what i loved about this game was how much this game reminded me of punch out um mm-hmm. i'm a huge punch out fan i uh it's one of my favorite series of all time but i remember as a kid just uh, like against the bruiser brothers and super uh, punch out or against um mr dream in the original um punch out just literally having those codes to get back to that fight and just memorizing patterns just doing it over and over again that that type of approach mm. to a, like a boss gaming works for me personally, but I completely understand why that would put people off. So, so how did, how did you guys a approach it? And did you feel that this game was too hard? I think the difficulty is pretty well considered through most of the game. There's a couple like specific attacks with specific, uh, you know, from specific bosses that I, I don't know, could have probably used a second pass or maybe like two attacks that probably shouldn't be like performed simultaneously. Um, that could be a bit like of a crapshoot whether or not you would, whether or not you're able to avoid them. But for the most part, like mm-hmm. the fact that all of these levels are so short, uh, being like mm-hmm. just like two, two and a half minutes long means that like they're all, they're all very doable and that progress for flag 
really does again not only shows you like how close you are to the end of the stage but it also shows you like how close you are to form transitions which can be really encouraging as yeah, well it's like yeah. oh like yeah definitely if you get defeated like right before it's about to transform then you see the like profile picture of its transformed state and you're like oh i was pretty much in the next form i can do it this time and it's it's so right. like encouraging in that little way um i'll say the only like real hiccup for me is that like it's not really a hot take but i think that the uh dr calls robot is too hard and um that one could have used some adjustment downwards how about you james i think i can sum up whether it's appropriately mined or overblown, I mean, I don't necessarily feel the need to comment on the discussion around difficulty. Mm-hmm. Kind of been there, done that, and I think a game like Celeste shows you can have a really tough game and you can allow players to choose their own experience out of it and trust the player to find their fun. I think that can work. Right. So my biggest criticism, actually, of the difficulty, I think, is simple mode. Mm-hmm. Not yeah, I agree. only... Yep. Do you only see, say, two? Like as as an example, the root pack. You only see two out of the three vegetables. It skips the potato. I want to say. Yeah, I think so. Might be the un- it skips one of them anyway. So you don't get to see. All, if you have simple there for someone who's not able to play the game but wants to see the game, you then deprive them of seeing a third of that boss and and every other boss going forward. You miss out at least one phase. So it it doesn't satisfy there. And then you can. Comp- complete all of the the bosses on simple but you're not going to be able to move on to the next aisle inkwell aisle two until you go and do them regular so they, yeah they treat it in the game as if it's training wheels i'll play it on simple and then you can you can promote yourself up into regular mode in order to be able to really progress through the game i think that's a mistake i don't want to backseat develop the game but the people for whom we've just heard from a couple of them, this game's just too frustrating. They came to this game mm-hmm. for a reason. They wanted to be able to play this game for a reason. And that is a not just a barrier to their progress, but a barrier to their fun. And sure, you can say that the developer wanted people to reach a certain level of play so that they can get that level of satisfaction. My take on it is always a developer cannot tailor make a difficulty for every player of the game and sure. a way to do it, signified by the fact there are simple, regular, and expert difficulties, is to allow the player to tailor some of the difficulty towards what's challenging for them. And I'd have preferred to see a simple that gave you a full view of what the bosses are, and maybe so the the broken uh, charm that then becomes the curse charm that then becomes the the I believe blessed once you you've played through a number of bosses with it. The saving grace of that. You start off with one HP, but after a number of parries, you can add an HP to that. I'd have preferred to see something, now that we've seen that mechanic brought into the game, in simple like, okay, you want to use that as a training pad or a training, uh, a safe space, if you like, for want of a better phrase, mm-hmm. for players to learn the game. Let them see all the stages of the bosses. Whether or not you tweak the, the HP and the boss's damage and the boss's HP or whatever, I don't know. But how about you train people to parry which is an important mechanic by encouraging them with every other time they parry they get another hit point that would have seemed like a trade-off where you're actually encouraging people to see all of the boss attacks to get familiar with all of the mechanics but in a way that makes simple a viable way to experience this game i think i tend to agree with that i think simple simple mode is is kind of a 
a misnomer. It's it's almost like a it's almost like a redacted mode. You know, it just it's it almost a, a demo for the game or something. It's weird. Yeah, and it does it doesn't seem to allow the player who might say, "Hey, I want to bump this down to easy because I want to try to get better. I want to try to see, learn the patterns, and everything like that. Everything like that. Mm. It it would almost be better served with almost like a like being able to do like a practice run. You know what I mean? Or just like kind of. Or even just a mode where you're able to see the whole boss fight through, even though it doesn't allow you to progress afterwards. Um, but yeah, again, I, I'm not trying to backseat develop. And obviously the difficulty in video game conversation has been had for years yeah. by everybody. Um, so I'm not uh, trying to, to, to go down that road. But um, but it certainly was something that that would have pushed some people off. And I think like both you and Ryan said at the beginning of our conversation that the just the striking nature of the visual style and people's enjoyment of just watching this game in action did probably push a lot of people over a hill that they maybe would not have been willing to climb for for several reasons, um, kind of right at the outset. So, but yeah, it, it obviously it was a over half the correspondence that, that wrote in. It was a big talking point for them. Yeah, so obviously it's still one of those things that's discussed. So there is an expert difficulty mode, which is unlocked after you beat all the uh, all the <laughs> characters or all the bosses on regular. Um, there's also a special black and white mode that you can unlock. Um, in on Inkwell Isle three, I believe there's a turtle on a sh- on a uh, boat that says, "Oh, you know, uh, you know, on the on the running and gunning levels." I can't remember his exact quote. You know, if you play, you know, those are just innocent creatures. If you play as a pacifist, something might good might happen. And basically, on all of the running gun levels, if you make it through those levels without killing any of the enemies, all six of them, you unlock a black and white mode. Which which has a visual black and white filter, but also a filter for the audio. Um, I was going to try to unlock this before the uh, recording of the episode, and I got through the first uh, run and gun level and said okay. And the second one, I tried about five times and said I have no interest in doing this anymore. <laughs> so I walked away. Did either of you guys toy with either of these uh, uh, settings or, or difficulties? Um, I, I definitely tried uh, to pass first run a level, and I, I think there might have been an achievement for th- that's kind of the clue to get you into doing that. Yeah, there's also a DLC achievement for for not attacking any of the minions as well. But I, I never unlocked all of them like you. I just never put the time aside to go and do that. Um, yeah, which given I'm now doing the broken, cursed, blessed charm mm-hmm. side quest, kind of I probably should have done the black and white one as well. Uh, <laughs> but expert difficulty modes, one of those where. Like I say, I'd I'd 105% completed the game, but I hadn't gone back. And you need to play on expert in order to get S ranks. I got S rank on the first level, went all the way back to see how I found that now that I'd got a a kind of character build I liked and and to try Mm -hmm. it after I'd beaten the game and got the S rank and was like, I can't imagine going through and doing that for every every boss. So <laughs> yeah. I've not been back to it. It's something that I might like to try, but yeah, it's a bit like Hollow Knight 112%. It might just be a bit beyond me, unfortunately. Yeah, same. I haven't really experimented too much with uh, expert or pacifism. Ryan Zhao, not a pacifist. He just said it right here on the podcast. Um, no, yeah, it, it seems like one of those things. I think it's really cool that it's yeah. there. But when we get into the stage design, which is kind of our last big section to talk about here, we'll, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the running gun uh, stages. Um, so, yeah, speaking of the stages, um, uh, James and Ryan have already mentioned the different aisles that you have. And, and each aisle um, has a s- series of bosses that you need to complete before moving forward. You do not need to complete the running gun stages in order to complete the aisle. However, the by 
completing the run and gun stages, you unlock sh- little shortcuts to different boss areas. So it does limit some bit of progress um, uh, if you don't do those. And uh, yeah, you get through all three of the aisles uh, with all the bosses that are in there. Um, you make your way to Inkwell Hell, where you fight basically Mr. King Dice and the devil. And that's it. And there's there's your video game right there. So simple. Um, uh we we would be this would be a seven hour podcast. We went and talked about all the different bosses and the and 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 what we liked or didn't like about them. Uh, one of the things I did just want to point out was the character design of these bosses. I think was something that really uh, kept pushing me through because because each boss you knew that you were in for a even if it wasn't a fight that you particularly enjoyed, you were in for a very unique visual experience. Um, and everyone, I was just kind of excited to see what they did next um, with the next boss fight and how they were going to iterate on the things I'd already learned. Um, but yeah, so I'm just going to kind of put it to, to you two. Are there any highlights or lowlights in um, the boss stages that you'd, that you'd prefer to kind of point out? Yeah, my favorite by far is the stage play. Like I just, I love the okay, kind of storytelling. Yeah. I like the the kind of split paths you can take on that one. Mm-hmm. You know, t- to fill people in, I guess it's about a uh, you're fighting a woman who's performing a kind of like a like a one woman show type of uh, type of routine where it's kind of like an overview of her life from marriage up until like post death, um, with a few kind of stages in between and. Um, depending on how long you take in that first stage, like which takes place during her wedding. If you take too long, then her husband who is in the background waiting for the fight to finish dies. And the next stage, instead of being like a big family home with a bunch of babies throwing bottles at you is uh, the woman at a nunnery with a bunch of nuns throwing like (laughs) rulers at you, which is uh, kind of like grimly funny. Um, I like that a lot. Uh, So yeah, I don't know. That's, That's like my big kind of standout stage. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're all so creative. I think the the cat and mouse fight is very funny. I think the yeah, ghost train is very yeah. creative, even if not every like form is super fun to fight. There's the one of the DLC where you're on the plane that like the entire screen flips sideways once uh, every yeah. once in a while. That can be really hard yeah. to adjust to. But um, yeah, really great stuff. Each one of them is really kind of a Marvel not only in the art, but also like they're all trying different things. They're all kind of forcing you to think about the space in different ways. So lots of favorites, but yeah, the, um, this stage play is the one that really stands out the most to me. Um, so for me, it's weird because I would start off each level thinking, Oh, this one's kind of annoying. I'm not sure I'll get the hang of this. And by the end of it, it was like, no, this is one of my favorites. It's like just every single level is just, no, I really love this. By the time I got to the end, I think I tweeted out one of the DLC levels where it was like, my journey was can't get through this, can't get through this, making a bit of progress. Now I've fallen back and I'm doing worse than I was before. And then (laughs) by the time I got to the point of beating it, it was like fairly rare for me not to get some kind of A grade just because Mm. by definition, I wasn't getting hit anymore by definition. In order to do that, I had to be parrying. And once I got my full five stack of cards, I was using my supers. So kind of by necessity in order to beat the the levels there was absolutely some where i scraped through because i happened to luck my way through the last phase or whatever but largely by the time i got to the end i kind of felt like i had mastered it to a certain extent Mm -hmm. but then having said that going back to some of the early levels i had completely forgotten the um flower level when i replayed that cagney carnation oh yeah that's hard just completely forgotten it. i had no muscle memory for that whatsoever i don't know whether i looked through it quite quickly on my first playthrough uh and now playing it with the the cursed charm just 
right. was a real challenge, I have to say. <laughs> but I will give a special mention to, so King Dice is almost certainly going to be one that people point to as problematic. But like one of our forum correspondents said, oh, it felt like it was too much luck. By the time I was getting to King Dice and doing that sort of final uh, fight, I absolutely felt like I had a certain amount of control, not necessarily over the mini boss I got, but I made sure I hit where, you know, you can get an extra HP or, you know, I, mm-hmm. I could control that roll of the dice somewhat. I may be misremembering yeah. how much control I had, but I absolutely felt like, no, I'm more in control of how this is going to go than I, I felt initially. You can parry on the dice so you know specifically what the dice is going to roll if you yeah. can time it right. That's easier yeah. with Miss Chalice as well because she has the instant Absolutely, parry. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. You're not kind of... Yeah, that's the thing. With the, with the jump, it's a little floaty, the parry. You really have to be, be in anticipation of where you're going, whereas, yeah, uh, Miss Chalice's is much more immediate. So I really enjoyed, by the time I defeated King Dice, I really enjoyed going through that and feeling like I hadn't just mastered all of the individual fights I could potentially get up to that point, but that that sort of dice roll game and then the fight afterwards, it was just a lot to string together, but it was really sure. cool. Uh, and uh, a shout out to um, the chef fight at the end of the DLC. Yeah, I <laughs> really, really liked that fight in the end. It was tough, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, that's that's great. I was going to mention that one too in a minute. Um, the the one that that pops to mind immediately is Grim Matchstick, which is the dragon that you fight on the clouds. Um, one. Um, one of the, yeah, the reason it yeah. sticks out in my head is because the final form of that fight, when the dragon turns into a three handed dragon and comes up from the left side of the screen, I I almost I almost had tears in my eyes from remembering Mega Man Two <laughs> Doctor Wily Stage One that has the three headed the dragon comes from the left. Oh man, it just it hit me in such a br- like you know you know this is the new boss, same as the old boss, just kind of bam, like, like drawing on experience and from old games and making it new and fresh for me. It just, ah, it just hit so well. And then that boss absolutely destroyed me for a while. It took me a while to get past that. Um, I was going to say, as far as ones that I, that I don't love, um, was going to be uh chef salt baker mm-hmm. only because I think that fight's incredible, but that flame that keeps walking back and forth on the bottom oh, yeah. that you have to always be, Oh yeah. my God. I, I was losing my mind <laughs> trying to keep track. I thought I was having a good run. All of a sudden I'd take damage. I'm like, <laughs> what happened? And then I'd see the flame. I'm like, yeah, I just, you take your mind off it for oh, one yeah. second. Oh, it's yeah. just there. Oh, but also super rewarding when you end up beating it too. And, it was really neat. Those projectile sections in the first phase of that fight where he's chopping up the stuff oh, and throwing so it all. Cool. Boy, yeah, that, that yeah. is so cool. It's a lot. It really is a lot. And you've got projectiles coming at different angles, different yeah. speeds. And, <laughs> but by the end of it, that first phase was just like, right, what's next? Yep, great. And every time I saw yep. the, the sugar cube get smashed, it's like, brilliant. Bring me the parries. I'm having every yep, exactly. one of these. <laughs> <laughs> another i wanted to quickly touch on just because it's in my mind from the dlc apologies i'm cherry picking dlc stuff it's just sure in my mind no, at course. the moment um did either of you fight the angel and demon secret boss to get the broken relic or uh, sorry, yes you get the broken relic and then turn it into the cursed yeah you got to do this puzzle in the graveyard i ended up looking it up because i got yeah, a little confused sure. but yes um i had to look it up not because i didn't know what i was doing but i misinterpreted the clues so sure just quickly in the dlc there is a graveyard with a ghost next to it once you've bought a broken relic from uh, the shop the ghost tells you that there's something to do with the broken relic and the graveyard and the competition and over in a different part of the map there are three contestants who've done some kind of 
climbing competition. Yeah, they were climbers, yeah. right? Yeah. And they're standing on a podium first, second, and third, and you interact with them and they just say, oh, I'm really glad I got second or whatever it is. But in every single one of them, there's a directional clue, but the way it's worded can be a little bit finicky and you need to do it in order sure. first, second, yeah. and third. I was try- I was doing the right thing, but I was misinterpreting the clues and everyone's clues are slightly different. It's per save uh, unique, so there isn't a specific solution to it. But the general gist, so I had to look it up for that. But I really, really enjoyed the angel and demon fight because mm-hmm. I had no clue what I was doing wrong. And it felt like I could not beat this because I needed to be, or I thought I needed to be Miss Chalice to do it. But that meant I couldn't have the charm that gives me the invincible dash, which meant right. I didn't think I could get through the flame pillars that are all the way vertically across the screen and panning all the way right to left or left to right across the screen. I was just at the point of getting frustrated when I thought there must be a reason why sometimes it turns transparent and sometimes Mm -hmm. it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Working out that it was you've got to face the demon and away from the angel. So, so good that moment. That was a proper portal level of I feel like I've just seen through the Matrix and unlocked a whole (laughs) new level to, to this puzzle. Yeah. Uh, it was That's really, so really cool. cool. couple points of difficulty throughout the game. The Wally Warbles stage, which is the giant bird. Yeah. I think most of the fight is pretty fun, but the last phase where he's in a kind of hospital stretcher, <laughs> yeah. it's so yeah. annoying because there's very few angles that you can hit him from. And one mm-hmm. of the angles where you can consistently hit him from is like underneath in like the lower left corner uh, as his kind of body bulges down below the gurney. But then you can get cornered really easily, and sometimes there's no way to avoid projectiles in that little tiny corner of the screen yeah. you have to wedge yourself into. And so I, I really dislike that one. <laughs> and then I, uh, yeah, I've already mentioned the giant robot. I just, it's it's too hard. <laughs> there's nothing else to it. It's just too hard. <laughs> I uh, I feel the too hard way about the the bee. Uh, I forget her name. Uh, starts out with like a B police officer. <laughs> That's like the first phase. Mm-hmm. You take him out. Um, rumor Honeybottoms, of course. Of course. But uh, <laughs> I actually really like that fight up till the final phase because she kind of comes down from above and you can kind of she has these big like kind of like swinging attacks and you can tell which one she does by how far she drops or whatever. But the final phase of that fight is she's coming up from the bottom and I was having such trouble jumping and then shooting downward because if you if if you jump then press down and shoot you're good but if you uh, you're trying oh, to time yeah. it perfectly if you're holding down when you press jump you drop down yeah, through the yeah. platform right onto her ah, i struggle with that i that's mean that's why you got to equip those drop shots they're super powerful and they go down <laughs> so the way i got through that I, and you mentioned that before ryan i think i used that on my second playthrough and on the first playthrough i ended up using the homing mm-hmm. uh oh excuse me the i can't even remember. i've looked Chaser. up before i forget the name of it Chaser, there yeah. it is thank you yeah so those were the ones but yeah that one brought me both yeah. i mean i played through in full times obviously you play through these stages so many times hard to remember but yeah. i've got two save files that are full complete on my game and both times rumor honey bottoms is easily the one that i spent the most time on just because I, I couldn't i just couldn't do it could not do it too hard so i would like to give a a uh, bit of a shout out to the um the plane levels i guess is the best best way yeah. to describe those uh, and the running gun just for breaking up the flow of the game, like yeah, the, yeah. the the plane levels are ostensibly similar mechanics. You're moving around the screen more freely, so it takes out some of the platforming. But you're still having to dodge, and you're still firing the same way. You're still parrying the same way. Uh, the mm. special shots and and super moves still work similarly. Uh, but I really enjoyed those. Um, I think just 
for whatever reason, Jimmy the Great, the pyramid level of that, mm-hmm. was the first point in the game where I kind of felt, oh, I'm getting the hang of this now. Weird okay. that yeah. it would be one of the non-standard levels that I would feel that on, but that was kind of the point at which I got, yeah, okay, I, I've I've got this now. Not to say there weren't difficulties, as Ryan's mentioned afterwards. Um, but the run and gun levels, I'm pretty sure I remember hearing that after they first started showing the game and people were concerned that it was just bosses, those levels yeah. were actually then put in. They, not put in, but that was an idea that came out of that kind of reaction to the game just being bosses, was to introduce these other stages. And I think they worked. They were a completely different type of play where if I just felt like I was running against a bit of a brick wall, I could go and do one of those as a complete sort of change of pace. And yeah, I really like that. Yeah. I I personally was not a fan of the running gun levels, as you said. Um, one thing I was talking about that it was an initial backlash because people saw the style and were excited about it, and then were like, "Wait, it's just bosses, just yeah. bosses!" Like people were thinking that this is going to be like a like a Mario style mm-hmm. side scroller, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 that's clearly not what they're going for. So they were added, not added, like you said, not exactly afterwards, but included as part of that feedback. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't really do a lot for me, but I I wanted the coins for Pork Rinds Emporium, so for there sure, I was. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. going to get them and to be clear I, I don't think i don't think that's me I, i'm not trying to say that this game couldn't have worked just being boss runs i was not absolutely not of a mind of yeah this needs something else but i just ended up appreciating those those levels so we already talked about the progress line and stuff like that yeah. uh, we already talked about a bit of these things one of the things i do just have to say before we move on is um the uh, moonshine mob uh boss in the dlc um <laughs> I, I was struggling very hard struggling very hard and i got to the point and it said knockout and i just put the controller down because i'm like thank yeah, oh thank goodness that's over <laughs> and it turns out they have a fake knockout and a little guy comes out from under the hat that's on top of the anteater and he bodied me and i had to redo that entire fight <laughs> wow. again and oh, that's rough i was mad but i like i said i scream laughed it just hit me so like <laughs> what a great because that was the first boss that i yeah. fought in the dlc and what a great way like to put you on your heels instantly we're like oh i played cuphead i know how this works and you get that and it does that false knockout oh so funny so fun and they even have like a fake banner they hold up yeah it's, oh, yeah, it's just great just a, i mean that's just wonderful stuff for me that was my first level i did in the dlc so yeah. my take was oh they've changed the knockout sign oh well, that's cool uh, and then <laughs> right. no 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 they haven't i made it through that first time but i lost like two hit points <laughs> straight away i was yeah. just lucky yeah. that i had yeah <laughs> two in the tank awesome. to lose that's just a great idea yeah it was so well cool. great idea and well executed <laughs> Okay, so we talked a lot about the DLC. We don't need to talk about it much more other than to say that when it, when it came out June 30th of this year, it was um, very healthily um, received. Uh, Open Critic has an 88% and Metacritic has an 89%. We already talked about Miss Chalice and uh, kind of what she brings to the table. They all. It also is worth noting that they did, in fact, release the Cuphead show on Netflix, as you mentioned earlier, James. It it wasn't just a somebody bought the rights of it. It's not the Metal Gear Solid movie that <laughs> is still somehow being made somewhere. Um, no, the the show came out, and as someone who has a five year old son, I can tell you that show is not bad. It's um, it's pretty fun. They, they he enjoys watching that, and um, and yeah, just a little bit more Cuphead in your life, should you so choose. It bothers me though because the game is made in such like a particular art style, uh, like the 1930s animation, and then the Netflix yeah. show is like a Ren and Stimpy, Rocco's Modern Life style yeah. 90s yeah. Nickelodeon aesthetic, which is like yeah. that's not what I come to Cuphead to see. <laughs> like, why did you pick Cuphead and right. then not pick up on its most defining aspect? 
I think the only thing they try to do to make it seem like that they had they just put the green filter on it, but it's but but the animation is it's absolutely Ren and Stimpy. That's all I can yeah, think about yeah. when I when I watch yeah. it with my son yeah. for sure. Yeah, it is kind of strange they didn't they didn't go with that. Which I, I guess is a different kind of throwback. You, you're almost taking those characters and putting them in a different animation style, which, which is valid. But I completely agree, Ryan. It's not. It, it didn't felt feel. It wasn't what I expected, I guess, is is all it is. But, and it's yeah. not like the Ren and Stimpy style is easy to animate either. Like, I could understand if they're doing this kind of like family guy puppet animation to save some money, but like sure. something like, you, you know, Ren and Stimpy is still very much like dependent upon custom drawings and, you know, it's still yeah, very yeah. labor intensive. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, seeing Disney resurrect some classic Mickey Mouse cartoons in that, uh, I don't even know what, like, whether they're doing puppet animation or whether it's all hand drawn, but they've got this kind of new classic Mickey Mouse style that's been going on. Yeah. And that is like kind of an interesting modernization of that like 1930s style. So, you know, it, it, it's not like this is just not being done anymore either. Yeah, yeah, this is, yeah. This is I wonder. Yeah, I wonder um, because there was there's been lots of speculation about is Studio MDHR going to do anything Cuphead related again with how long and mm-hmm. how work intensive it seems to do without obviously upscaling their development team and everything else. Which it sounds like they don't want to do. Um, maybe uh, maybe maybe the work intensive part of it, like you said, Ryan. Um, maybe that did the style they chose allowed them to do things a little quicker. But but like you said, that animation style isn't exactly small scale yeah. or easy to pull off either. So. Interesting stuff. So a couple more pieces of correspondence before we get into our summaries. Um, Tolkien Tater says, uh, I got this game because it looks incredible, but quickly realized my intense lack of skill at games, 2D ones in particular, was going to be an obstacle to me seeing the game through. Realizing I didn't get much other than frustration from the gameplay. I use one of several easy mode mods and focus on enjoying the incredible art and music. So I can't really say much about the gameplay other than I suck at it. Uh, the art and animation is absolutely worth checking out, even just via a playthrough if you have any interest in animation. No More Spiro says, Typically I pay, play Cuphead in the safest possible method, by which I mean I equip the smoke ball and Chaser and focus more on avoiding enemy attacks and going for high damage and fast times. This method doesn't always work since they don't apply for airborne bouts, but it's the one that allows me to fully enjoy the game's obvious highlights in, my, in terms of its aesthetics and its music to the fullest. This carries over to the running gun levels, what I view to be the most underappreciated aspect of the game. To be more precise, this comes from aiming for the pacifist bonus, letting the understandably sore denizens of whatever drinkware-headed hero is roaming go unharmed. It's like a puzzle game in a sense, figuring out where you can plan your next move safely, how to navigate across a pit while avoiding enemy fire, or what the secret is to getting past each stage's mini-boss. It's a welcome reprieve from the hectic nature of boss fights proper, and I'm still a little sore that the delicious last course didn't include any. Yeah, worth worth mentioning. None of none of the running gun levels in in delicious last course. There were uh, there was a shooting level in there, but uh, not not a running gun. Yeah, that's yeah, that's actually surprising. I, I didn't realize that until right now. But yep, nothing there. That shooting level is pretty good. That horse. Yeah, all good yeah, stuff. Yeah, really good. <laughs> And uh, finally, Andrew Cummings, who uh, commented on our Patreon page, um, which you can do if you go to our Patreon feed, you can comment on the upcoming episodes. Um, He states, Cuphead has been a game with an amazing double life in my family. At launch, the art style drew me in, and although much of the conversation seemed to be about difficulty, I found the game to be beatable, something I put down to being inspired by the platform and -and run-and-gun games of my youth. Fast forward to 2022, and my sons picked the game up for my Series X menu on a rainy half-term afternoon. I assume they would bounce off the challenge and Minecraft would be swiftly reloaded. I couldn't have been more wrong. They were drawn in by the characters and the ability to work together on tactics. Pretty soon, Cuphead bosses and their weaknesses were the main topic of daily conversation in our house. 
In particular, my six-year-old fell head over heels for Cuphead. He is very much a child of lockdown and spent the extra screen time of 2020 perfecting both the original Shinobi and Alex Kidd in Miracle World before I blew his mind with the existence of Alex Kidd in Shinobi World. Side note, no Alex the Kid in our house. Uh, the gameplay in Cuphead, therefore, when coupled with those aforementioned characters, drew him in completely. He has spent the last six months trying to get through every boss in the game, and to date only, King Dice and the Devil elude him. The Netflix show became a regular TV treat. Drawings came home from school of Cuphead, Mugman, and company. And I write this having just read a Cuphead comic for a bedtime story. The icing on the cake was the announcement of the delicious last course release date, which of course became a day one purchase after the days were literally counted down until it became available. Cuphead at heart has great gameplay, which harked back to the gaming classics of old, while it's looking like the cartoons of even older. My abiding memories of it, though, will always be how it most unexpectedly inspired two kids and brought my gamely family together across the generations. Absolutely magical. Thanks for sharing that, Andrew. That was wonderful. There is no universe in which I, at six years old, could have tackled these these bosses. Oh, God, no. No way. (laughs) No chance. (laughs) That's That's really impressive. So, as always, we put out the call on Twitter uh, for three-word reviews. You can follow us at Kane and Rinse. So, these are the submissions we got this week. Alex79UK says, brutal, beautiful, brilliance. Blue Weasel Breath says, gorgeous, but grueling. Deadbeat Punk says, crucible of thumbs. Alex is my kid says, fiendishly stylish baddies. See if I can pull this off without having a British accent. Tree Smurf says, it's hard, isn't it? Udo Narrative FM, King Dice Gauntlet. NZ Gamer Dad 1, who we heard from earlier, this time says brutal yet addictive. Oscar Reba says the devil's gambit. Matt McGurney says boss rush jazz. Porg of Prophecy says difficulty prohibits play. Fran versus Food says Disney on crack. A damaged Ink 85, high class bout. <laughs> Ever beyond reach, squash and shoot. Toon Skatoon says, Dishy Action Achievement. And Mark FM 007, Brawl Surely Brewing. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for submitting those. Um, I'm going to kind of, we, uh, I try to take the lead from from Leon here and, and doing kind of from most uh, negative to most positive. But a- after talking about the game, I, I feel that us three could probably be listed pretty similarly in our feelings of the game. So I'm just going to go in reverse alphabetical order by last name. So <laughs> we will start with Ryan for your summary. Yeah, Cuphead is uh, Cuphead's really great. It's it's a game that puts off kind of an intimidating image, but the just the simple inclusion of those progress flags give you such like a feeling of forward momentum in each of these stages that um, it, it becomes imminently doable very quickly. You know, it could probably do with a little bit more kind of accessibility setting work, and um, there's a few kind of like little issues that i have with um with controls and with a couple of the phases of very specific bosses here and there but um for the most part it's um i mean it it looks like nothing else and it plays really really well you know kind of in the tradition of run and gun games which aren't really that much of a consideration anymore you know with the games like metal slug and sunset riders being really confined to arcades for the most part like where we encounter them these days uh, it's just kind of fun to see something like this in the home market and i'm glad that it's kind of caught its own cultural wave it's more of this for the next smash brothers please 
Yeah, I am. Um, obviously, I'm a big Cuphead fan. Uh, I think one of the reasons that I'm hosting this episode is because this was my suggestion for this volume of Kane and Rince. Um, it, it's it means a lot to me. Um, it's funny. I I can't really say enough about how, how much I enjoy playing the game that I haven't already said during the recording. But I was looking at my game of the year list for this year yesterday. And there's some big hitters on there, like your Elden Rings and, and such. But then I looked at some other games that I had on there and, and they were like Cult of the Lamb, Stephanie, um, Baron Breakfast. Um, and they were games that were just I was thinking about them. And it's just like the reason they were on my list was because not just because they were good. They were quite good, but just that because they offered really unique experiences you don't get anywhere else. And to me, Cuphead is kind of like the definition of that. Like as I've gotten older, I'm much less interested in some of the more big budget shootery, you know, blockbuster games. Not that I don't play them. It's just that I'm way more interested by the unique experiences. This is a game that doesn't feel like anything else. And Cuphead to me is just that Cuphead is a game that is wholly unique. Nothing else looks like it. Nothing else sounds like it. Nothing else plays like it. However, the styles of progression and kind of the setup for these boss fights and these, the progression reminds me so much of one of my favorite series of all time in, in punch out that I, that I just was already drawn to it from a gameplay perspective without even knowing it yet. I was drawn in by the art style, drawn in by the music. And then when I started playing it and realized what type of game it was, it just, it just checked all of my personal boxes for the things that I, I love about games. So uh, yeah, it's a game that I've played through, like I said, a full full playthroughs on on files. I've got two complete files, but I can't tell you how many times I've played these bosses. I think my Xbox clock said I'm at like 40 or 50 hours of the amount of time I've played this game. And and that will only continue over time because much like Super Punch Out or or something like that, like every once in a while, just like I want to go back and fight Glass Joe and Super Punch Out, I'm going to want to go back and I'm going to want to fight Hildeberg, you know, in Cuphead. I'm going to want to go back and remember the things that I loved about the game. So it's uh it's definitely a the the Darren Gargat trademarked epic shelf type of game for me. I probably do want to start off talking about, you know, we spent 90% of this recording not talking about something that we did spend probably 10, maybe 15% talking about, which is where this game comes from, where it takes inspiration from, and the importance of not just being aware of that, but leaving aside time to consider that, to think about it, and most importantly, to listen to other Mm -hmm. people who have historically not been afforded a voice. I understand that's frustrating for some people, and I don't apologize for that. I'm sorry if that's uh, problematic to anyone. I'm sure it's not by this stage of the podcast and knowing our audience, but I think it is so important for me to look back and think about where I come from how I'm affected by the art I consume, and to be empathetic, considerate, and to listen to how art affects other people. Cuphead has had a huge positive impact in the gaming industry, and the people who made it have done immensely well in terms of the... They've obviously put in a huge amount of work, and they have sold 6 million copies of the game, a million copies of the DLC. They now have a Netflix show for their characters. No one is harmed by having this discussion and listening to people talk about how where this game comes from, the influences it draws from, have affected them previously. It can only be beneficial to have that discussion. That Cuphead not only is a game I incredibly enjoy, but also forced me to look at where the art I enjoy comes from, where the games I enjoy come from, and consider how how I act as a human being. 
is just as important to me. Um, so I think having this podcast is a great chance to reflect on that. The game is a chance to reflect on that and for me to learn and for me to listen. Um, and that's, that's incredible. And the fact that the game has gone on to be as successful as it has as well is icing on the cake there. I don't think, I'm not going to speak for anyone else, I don't think those two things are incongruous to say that there are problems with where Cuphead, Cuphead's, how it was developed and where it came from. And also it's, to me, a really, really impressive game. And speaking of that impressive game, I wrestle sometimes with, there are some games that I just, I stop playing anything else, I set time aside and I bang my head against. That counts for Souls games, that counts for Hollow Knight, that counts for Cuphead. I am in no way, shape or form good at this game, but I enjoyed being not good at this game for as long as the game was telling me I was not good (laughs) at it. And I enjoyed seeing the twists, the turns, the surprises, how the game would pull the rug out from underneath me, the challenges it would put in front of me that I thought unsurmountable and yet managed to not just cope with, but enjoy and thrive uh, facing. I would love for everyone to be able to get an experience like that from this game. I absolutely think the DLC is a step forward in terms of some of the gameplay, in terms of the flexibility it allows players. Um, and that excites me for what Studio MDHR taking forward all of the learnings that are to be taken for Cuphead and all of the successes and seeing where they go next, whether that's more Cuphead, whether that's something else. That's really exciting to me that a very small studio, because it takes so long to develop, can produce something that is so aesthetically and in terms of game and mechanically refined as this is just jaw-dropping to me. Thank you, James. That was wonderful. I appreciate that. Um, So I guess that remains for me, Brian, to thank James and Ryan, as well as our correspondents, and of course, you for listening. So next time in issue 534, we will talk about the progenitor of so many point-and-click adventures of the past with a game that simply asks you to sort out an old house filled with some interesting characters. Maniac Mansion. (laughs) 